We are in a mini-series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, I guess it depends on your sense of mini. At least will be ten weeks, eleven weeks. Uh, but a mini-series on the Ten Commandments within our larger series on the book of Exodus. And in fact, getting to the Ten Commandments, preaching through these, is one of the reasons I wanted to preach on Exodus as a whole. The rest of the law that we find in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers is given by God through Moses. So God speaks to Moses, Moses speaks to Israel. The book of Deuteronomy reports to us a series of sermons that Moses preached on the law to Israel. But here in Exodus 20, these 10 words are spoken directly by God to his people as a whole. In Genesis chapter 1, if you count it up, it says 10 times, and God said... And he speaks ten ways ordering creation. Now at Mount Sinai, God again speaks ten words reordering creation, reordering, renewing his people, teaching us how we are meant to live, what we were meant to be. It's a bit like Israel's constitution. Everything else that comes later in the law, putting guardrails on the roof of your house, the manumission of slaves, how to treat animals, who you can marry, who you can't marry, on down the list, it's all in one way or another applying the basic principles found here to a variety of specific situations. Or to come at it from another angle, Jesus says the whole law is summarized as love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And these ten words, ten commandments, show us what it looks like to love God and to love our neighbor. It's not just about a feeling. It involves concrete practices and behaviors. Each week we're going to read Exodus 20, 1 through 17 as a whole, even though this week we're going to be focusing on the first of these commandments. Listen now as I read Exodus 20, 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. 
You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is God's word. I have three points this morning, so my outline is this. The Lord wants an exclusive relationship. That means no rivals. And then Jesus is the way. Sorry, it's kind of a mixed bag in terms of I didn't get it organized well, but uh, that they fit together, but it'll make sense hopefully. The basic principle of this first command, you shall have no other gods before me, is this. The Lord wants an exclusive relationship. The Lord wants an exclusive relationship with his people. He wants an exclusive relationship with you individually, with his people corporately. Uh, The 12th century theologian Thomas Aquinas says, since God is the end or the goal or the purpose of human life, worship is the first command. This is the first thing to get straight. Humans were created for relationship with God And so before we work out anything else in these Ten Commandments, this is the first thing that needs sorted. What kind of a relationship are we meant to have with the Lord? Way back in Exodus chapter 6 that we were in, I guess, early summer, after Moses' first failed attempt to get Pharaoh to let his people go, the Lord encouraged Moses, saying to him, this is what's going to happen. Here's the plan. I will take you to be my people And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's a pretty fair summary of the main theme of the whole book of Exodus. I'm going to take you to be my people, and I'm going to be your God, and you will know me by my personal name, the Lord who has rescued you. Exodus 6, uh, God's encouraging Moses. He's looking ahead to what's about to happen. But now here in Exodus 20, it has happened. The Lord has brought Israel out of Egypt. And so do you see there in verse 2, the Lord looks back. He reminds them, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In verse 2 there, he identifies himself three different ways. First, he uses his personal covenant name. He says, I am Hashem, the Lord. This is the name I gave to Moses. This is the name you can call me by. Second, he identifies himself by a relationship. I am the Lord, your God. We can go over that quickly, but it's quite remarkable. The Lord says from here on, here onwards, throughout all history, here's how you'll know me. I'm the God of Israel. I'm the God of this people. I'm the God who has bound myself to this people. And so in some sense, his own identity, his reputation is tied to his people. And then third, he says, I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the foundation for the relationship between God and his people. He's rescued them. He's set them free. I know a couple weeks ago I used the illustration of Treebeard the Ent from the Two Towers, and I'm sorry I'm going to use it again in a couple weeks, but uh, remember when Mary and Pippin want to know Treebeard's name, he says, my name is growing all the time, and I've lived a very, very long time, so my name is like a story. Real names tell you the story of the things they belong to in my language. And in a sense, that's what God is saying here. 
He's saying, my name is growing all the time. Now you will know me as the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's now part of his name, of his identity, of how we know who he is. So verse 2 fundamentally reminds us how to read the law rightly. The law doesn't save. It was never intended to. God has already saved his people. He's already brought them out of the house of slavery. Rather, the law is intended as a guide to teach people how to live on the basis of the relationship that God has established with them. Saying, God has saved you, what comes next? Well, here's what it looks like. And now the first principle that Israel is given for her new life as a people spells out what it means, you are my people, I am your God. What it means is that the Lord wants an exclusive relationship with his people. The best analogy for this kind of exclusive relationship is a marriage. And so that's why when the prophets are condemning unfaithfulness, they use the language of adultery. Well, in at least one traditional set of wedding vows, the groom is asked, will you forsake all others, keeping yourself to her alone? And the bride is asked, will you forsake all others, keeping yourself to him alone? Getting into a marriage means forsaking everyone else, keeping yourself for your spouse alone. Now, if we were at a wedding and the minister asked the groom, do you forsake all others, keeping yourself to her alone? And he responds, well, actually, I've been seeing another lady from time to time, and I'll probably keep it up uh, after we get married. I mean, we would be outraged. We would stand up, we'd say, you know, call the whole thing off. Hopefully the minister would sock the guy in the eye or something like that. I mean, I shouldn't advocate violence from the pulpit, but I mean, it's, it's a serious offense that like this would be ridiculous, absurd. The logic of a marriage relationship requires that it is an exclusive relationship. A judge would annul a marriage if the man made his vows with that in the background that he's going to keep carrying on with other women. Well, the same kind of relationship is what God wants with his people, an exclusive relationship. What does that involve? What does it mean to be an exclusive relationship with God? Uh, the 19th century theologian Herman Bavinck says, one way to think about this is we can use the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. What does it mean to have the Lord alone? Well, it means uh, this exclusive relationship with God means we put our faith in him. We acknowledge him as our God on the basis of his wonderful works in creation and salvation. We say, here is my God. Here's the God that I trust in. Here's the God who I rely on. Here is the God I rest on. We put our faith in God. An exclusive relationship means we put our hope in God. We say, I look to him to provide the good things I need. I look to him to sustain me. I trust that every good thing I need, he will give me, and what he doesn't give me, I don't actually need. I trust him. I put my hope in him. And an exclusive relationship with God means that we love him. In Deuteronomy, when Moses preaches on this, he says, this is what it means to love the Lord. You love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then Jesus repeats that. He says, this is what it means to love God. All your heart, all your soul, all your might. You love the Lord your God with your will, with your intellect, with your inner life, with your resources, with your ability. In short, you love the Lord your God with all that you have and all that you are. With everything, you love the Lord, your whole self. The Lord wants an exclusive relationship. 
Okay, we've looked at positively what that means. We put our faith in him, we put our hope in him, we love him. But it also means that there's no rivals. That's the second point. No rivals, no other gods. Now, some of you are probably thinking, I'm not even sure I believe in one God, let alone a bunch of gods, so how is this even relevant to me? Or maybe others of you are thinking, surely the biggest problem in our day is atheism, not polytheism. So what's the big deal here? Not so fast. Martin Luther, in his large catechism, asks about the first commandment, what does it mean to have a God? Answer, a God is that which we look to for all good and in which we find refuge in every time of need. That to which your heart clings and entrusts itself is, I say, really your God. What's Luther saying? He's saying when everything's falling apart and you're overwhelmed, what you turn to, that's your God. Or what all your hopes are fixed on and you're focused on and your life is, is oriented towards, that's your God. Whatever you look to for good, for salvation, whatever is ultimately the judge of your life, that is your God. And if that's what it means to have a God, the modern world is full of counterfeit gods. Uh, Christopher Wright describes it this way, instead of loving God and using created things, we use God and love created things. We use God to get created things, and, and instead of receiving them as gifts from him, we make them the goal, the focus. We make good things into the thing, the ultimate thing, the biggest thing, our ultimate good. Let's expand on Luther a little bit here and run some diagnostic tests to find out if any of us in this room are actually closet polytheists. A first test. When everything is falling apart, or you feel overwhelmed at work, or perhaps at school, or you have anxiety, or you're depressed, what do you turn to for relief? Is it Instagram, alcohol, sex, pornography? Do you lose yourself in video games? Do you withdraw into a novel? A lot of these are good gifts of God. God gave us alcohol, he gave us sex, he gave us recreation. Those are good gifts of God but we turn them into a false god when we turn to them for refuge in times of need. A second test. Fill in the blank here. You don't, don't have to do it out loud. In your head, fill in the blank. If I only had blank, then I would be happy. Or if I only had blank, then my life would be meaningful. If I only had a little bit more money, if I was only a little bit more successful, if only I had kids, if only my kids would behave, if only my kids would get into this college, if only I could date that person. Whatever that is that you're plugging in there, of course, none of those are bad things. We want, you know, kids are a good gift of God, kids going to a good college, those are all good things. But if we set our ultimate hopes on them, we say, this is what my happiness depends on, we're turning them into false gods, counterfeit saviors. And then what happens when it doesn't work out? We become despondent or angry or depressed. Our false god has abandoned us. Our desires become distorted because we desire them as if God didn't exist. A third test. 
Who is our judge? Whose opinion really matters? Is it the God who loves us and sees us and judges us in Christ's righteousness? Or is it the opinion of, 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 of the crowd? We've got to fit in at school or at work. Or maybe it's the opinion of our friends. What they think and say is what really matters. You know, my parents say this, church says this, but my friends will judge me if I behave that way. And that's what really matters. Some of us, what really matters is the opinion of our parents. I just wish my parents approved of me. Some of you, your parents may be dead, and that's still in the back of your head. If only my parents had approved of me. The fourth and last test comes directly from Jesus. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is to say, what you spend your money on and your time and your energy, it guides your heart. It leads your heart to be fixed on it. Again, there's so many good things that become false gods if we devote our resources to them. Fishing, hunting, clothes, running, houses, vacation, pets, children, on down the list. There's a million things uh, that we set our hearts on, we start putting our, or sorry, that we spend our treasure on, and if we're not careful, they capture our hearts. Uh, this summer I was running a race and I chatted for a while with the guy next to me. He'd flown to Washington to run this race from Alabama. The month before he had flown to England. The following month he was going to Italy. He said, yeah, about once a month I fly all over the place to do these kinds of things. And I, I'm not making this up. The man actually said, my son turned 18 the other year and so I don't have to support him anymore. So I have more money to spend on running. Okay, maybe that sounds crazy to you, but plug in boat hunting, whatever it is. I mean, you guys know the drill. You buy a jet ski and you spend money on it and then you think, well, we got to get our value out of it and we work all week, so we got to go jet ski on the weekends and before you know it, half your weekends, instead of being at church and in fellowship with others, you're off jet skiing. Again, jet skis are not intrinsically bad, but it becomes an idol. We put our, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Uh, just as a total, to actually two asides, um, I'm wagering with my wife if I can actually pre preach a short sermon or not. And so this is going to that. Two asides. One is this is what we do when we give in the offering. Is partially we're directing our hearts. We're saying, I'm putting my treasure into God's kingdom. I'm investing in this church and my heart's going to be there. Uh, it's kind of a paradox. The people who are at church most often are the people who say, I need to be at church this week. You'd think they could take a week off. But the more you're there, the more your heart's invested in it. The more you give your resources towards something like this, the more your heart is invested in. And so when we give in the offering, it's a bit like a heart exercise. The other side is, is, is more related to the marriage Sunday school class. But again, this is part of how you direct your heart towards your spouse. You use your resources and your time and your energy, and then you'll find that your heart follows that as you treasure your spouse. Well, you might be wondering, okay, uh, you've caught me out. I perhaps do have a few false gods. They're not as big as the main god. You know, I believe in the true god, but I got these other gods alongside in my heart. But what's really the big deal? Why does God care so much? Is he just jealous? Uh, is, he, is he insecure? Why does he care so much? Psalm 115 says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Okay, this is kind of the Indiana Jones statue idol. They've got pictures of eyes, ears, nose, mouth, feet, 
but they can't actually move, talk, smell, any of that. But here's the line I want you to catch. The psalmist then says, those who make these idols become like them, so do all who trust in them. There's an important principle there. That last line is key. When we worship false gods, we become like these idols. In modern language, we'd say it's dehumanizing. We're less than what we were meant to be. Humans were made in the image of the true and living God. And when we worship the true God, we become like him. We become more fully human, what we were meant to be. Uh, And then we can enjoy the created things of this world as good gifts from God. But worshiping a false god is always ultimately dehumanizing. It makes us less human. God gives alcohol and he says use wine as a sacrament of the Lord's Supper, as a gift of God. And yet if alcohol becomes your god, it's dehumanizing. Uh, I mean, if you don't believe me, go downtown after this and, and see a bum on the street who's addicted to alcohol. They worship alcohol. And it's not a flourishing, full-orbed human life. Go on down the list. Someone who sex or pornography becomes their false god, it actually makes them less human. Food, work, recreation. I mean, it's a weird thing. We'll get there on the Sabbath command, but we live in an age that makes both work and recreation into idols. Neither one is in its right place. And you think, how can that even be, that we're always working and always recreating, and yet somehow we've got it all mixed up. When we take any good gift of God and we set it up as the biggest thing in our life, it becomes a false God and it degrades us. It robs us of our true and full humanity. In short, the true God gives. False gods take. The true God gives us life. Idols steal our lives. God gives joy and peace. False gods steal true joy. They offer no true peace. There may be a little bit of happiness for a season, but it doesn't last. If we're honest with ourselves, as we consider these diagnostic tests, we think this through, we realize that as John Calvin puts it, our hearts are perpetual idol factories. Every good thing our heart wants to latch onto and churn out a new idol, a new counterfeit God. Herman Bavink again, he says, all idolatry is sin And at the same time, all sin is idolatry. That is to say, any other God we have alongside the one true God, it's a sin. Having an idol is a sin. But at the same time, any sin, anything we do wrong, at some level originates by having a false God. By serving something other than the true God. By desiring in a distorted way as if God didn't exist. And so we have to stop trying to use God to get things and instead bend ourselves towards God. I want to turn a corner now. Uh, Jesus taught his disciples, I have not come to abolish the law and, or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Well, how does Jesus fulfill the first commandment? What does that mean? When we reflect on what it means for Jesus to fulfill the first commandment. We see that Jesus is the way. That's the third point this morning. Jesus is the way. So we've seen God wants an exclusive relationship with his people. He doesn't tolerate rivals. And then when we turn to the Gospels in John 14, Jesus makes a similarly exclusive claim. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
It's just as an exclusive, it's just as exclusive of a claim as here in the first commandment. Jesus says, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's an exclusive relationship that allows for no rivals. But if the Lord God in Exodus 20 has already made this exclusive claim on us, how can Jesus do the same? Because Jesus is not an other God alongside the true God. He is himself, the true God, become flesh for us. As we sang in our first hymn this morning, to thee, great one in three, eternal praises be, hence evermore. That God is from all eternity three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, the first commandment then is essential to our understanding of who God is, what God is like. Like Treebeard, God's name grows. He's first the God who made all things, then the God who delivers Israel, brings them out of slavery. And now we see that he is the Lord your God who took on flesh and dwelt among you in order to make a way for us to come to the Father. That's not to say God's nature changes or his being. Of course not. God is ever the great one in three. But through the story of the world, we learn God's name, how to speak rightly about and to God. How is Jesus the way then? Well, Jesus fulfills this commandment, uh, or he fulfills the, the commandments, I should say. And that means that the commandments, all of them, are a bit like a job description for Israel's Messiah. It's saying this is what's required. This is what's needed. Someone who can perfectly keep these laws. Well, let's go back for a minute to that gospel story we read earlier this morning, Matthew 4. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. And we see each one of those temptations is a temptation to desire something in a distorted way. Okay, having bread is a good thing. But having bread in a way that dishonors God and that uses your power in a self-serving way, it becomes bad. They're all temptations to take a good thing and make it into an ultimate thing. In the third temptation, uh, the devil says to Jesus, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. If, if you fall down and worship me. Well, the first part of that is actually Jesus' mission. He came to extend God's kingdom, his rule and reign, throughout all the earth. The devil's saying, look, we can fulfill your mission right here and now. There's only one thing you need to do. You just need to bow to me for a brief moment. But Jesus rejects that offer, quoting the Old Testament law, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He can't pursue his mission as if God doesn't exist. The means are just important as the end. And then this characterizes all of Jesus' earthly life. Perfect fidelity to his relationship with God, his Father. He shows us what a fully human life looks like. A life devoted fully to the true God. And the Gospels portray to us the most attractive human life ever lived. Because Jesus is fully God and fully human. And in his fidelity to God, he shows us the glory of a human fully devoted to God. But Jesus didn't even treat his very life itself as more important than his obedience and his faithfulness to God. And so his fidelity, his faithfulness leads to his death. But in that death, through that death, comes new life. 
We see some good illustrations in the Old Testament of people who smash idols. Remember Gideon, he's a little timid, but in the middle of the night he gets up and he pulls down the statue of Baal. He's destroying a false god, an idol. Or Josiah, when he has the law read to him and he learns that they're not supposed to have any other gods, he goes around about smashing up all the false altars, cutting up all the idols. Uh, he even burns the false priest's bones on the altar. Uh, he goes, it's like a full crusade to drive out idolatry. And in some ways, that actually is easier because it's external things. And we, we, we hear God's intolerance for false gods, and we think, yeah, I want to smash all the false gods. But if they're not out there on hilltops or in parking lots, that kind of thing, they're in here in our hearts, how do we do that? What does it look like to tear down idols, to smash up false gods? Well, the idols of the heart are destroyed when they are replaced with something better when we delight in something that is more desirable than these false gods. And so Christ himself is the way that false gods are driven out of our heart when we see the beauty of the true God become flesh for our sake. In Exodus, God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now God says, I am the Lord your God who became human in Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who died the death you deserved to drive out all rivals. He lived this perfectly exclusive life with God. He rejects all ri rivals. He gives his life for us. And just as Israel is called to obey God on the basis of God's act of deliverance, I brought you out of the house of slavery, therefore, follow these commands. So Christ's work becomes the basis of God's claim over us. I've made a way for you to come back to me. Now, follow these commands. Here is a God that we can put our trust and our hope and our faith in. Here is a God who gives instead of taking at great cost to himself. A God who gives himself so that we might become more fully human. Here is a God that we can love with all that we have and are. For he loved us from eternity. And in Christ Jesus, through the incarnation, he loves us with all of his heart and soul and strength. Here is a God more desirable than all the false gods that run amok in our hearts. Let us pray. Lord, before you, all hearts are open. You know every nook and cranny of our hearts, and there's parts that we don't even fully know and understand ourselves. Sometimes we do things and we don't fully understand why, and yet it is open before you. And so you know all of the false gods, the counterfeit saviors that we look to. We ask that you would drive them out of our hearts, that you would replace them, with faith in you, the one true God, with hope in you, the God who will one day restore all things, with love for you, the God who first loved us. Lord, some perhaps have never actually put their trust in you. I ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would be at work in their hearts even now, helping them to see the way to freedom and a truly human life. Others of us, Lord, acknowledge you as our God, as our Lord and Savior, and yet you know that our hearts have other little gods in the corners 
that need destroyed, that need driven out. Do that work by your Holy Spirit even now. Amen.